0: Good morning. morning. Our scripture text this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 17, verses 1 through 13. If you're following along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 822. Matthew, chapter 17, I'll be starting in verse 1. And after six days... Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah, talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah." He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise, and have no fear. And when they lift up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Well, oh, good morning, and sadly, I have to admit uh, that BIOS still hasn't been updated. <laughs> um, being involved with the streaming media company led to being involved in the radio business, so... I'm involved uh, part of a company that has the stations here in Dansville as well as Penyan and Canandaigua. So that's kind of been my main thing over the last few years. But um if according to your church website, I think this is my 8th visit here going back to 2012. So it's it's been really wonderful to come and visit with you over that time and I'm always pleased to see the friendly faces and I tell people and I and I really mean this that it feels like our my home church when I come here, the same kind of people, the same sort of love that, that you feel here. Kind of as a prologue to the message today, this summer at our church, Evangelical Church of Fairport or ECF, we've been going through an adult Sunday school series on Christ and culture. I know it seems like a lot of heavy lifting for the summertime. But it's been really hard for us, I think, to, to really know how to relate to the society we live in at times. Um, I'm really understanding how my grandparents felt in the 60s and 70s, as things were changing pretty quickly then, and as the world around them got more violent, and as social norms were just kind of set by the wayside. So now, as opposed to when I was growing up in that era, things even seem to be changing more quickly now, and it really can be hard to navigate all of this. So in this series, we're kind of looking at how to live as sojourners and exiles here, uh, and looking at how the Bible says different ethnic groups should relate, and how to tell the truth with love about sticky issues like gender. But to really understand how we as Christians relate to this world while we await the world to come, we also need to understand scripture rightly. It's essential to understand how all the parts of scripture fit together uh, in, in context and how they fit in what's called redemptive history or the story of God's unfolding plan to redeem a people to himself. Some of the biggest errors people make in interpreting the Bible is not understanding where things fit rightly in redemptive history. They can take something that was meant for one era in God's unfolding plan and try to import it into another. You know, one example might be the food laws for Israel. Now, not eating pork is a small thing, and in Romans 14, Paul tells us that it is, but Some other things might lead to a wrong understanding of the new covenant, of the gospel, and even of Christ himself. And we're going to get a glimpse of that today in the passage that we're in. But to give kind of a a mental picture or a visual picture in your mind, probably all of us have put together a jigsaw puzzle at some point. Maybe one of those 500 or 1,000 piece puzzles. And when you start, you have a pretty good idea of what it is that you're going to be putting together from the cover of the box. So first, you probably dump all the pieces out on the table, and you make sure they're all turned over the right way. And then you look at individual pieces, and maybe you try to find a corner or an edge piece, and you start to put the puzzle together. And every so often, you can look back at the cover and see what it is you're trying to put together. Or maybe you'll go to find where a piece of a certain color or maybe has a person or a face or a window or a tree and see where that might go. And as you go along, you'll also look at what's already completed to see how a piece fits in there too. And eventually, you end up putting the whole puzzle together. And and what's especially important about putting that puzzle together? The pieces all go in a certain place and only in one place. Now, contrast that to a mosaic, you know, a a picture made up of tiles. You can kind of put different colors and different pieces in an an order and create your own picture. But if you try to do that with a jigsaw puzzle, you're not going to get what's on the box. It might be a picture, but not the one that was intended. And so it is with Scripture, so it is with the Bible. We can't just pluck passages or accounts or laws or commandments or narratives or prophecy out of the pile of pieces and just put them wherever we want. We need to look at all of Scripture in context. And so this morning we're introduced to figures from redemptive history who had a specific purpose in time and whose context helps to explain Jesus to us. Uh, Would you pray with me for the next part of our service? Heavenly Father, we do want to see how the pieces go together. We're excited to be in your word and see how all things in the past have led to Jesus and to see where you're leading us to our eventual home. Thank you for the brothers and sisters gathered here. And uh, may the words I speak to describe your word be honest and true Open our hearts and minds with your Holy Spirit to understand. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as was accurate in the introduction, I do broadcast RIT hockey. And over the past 25 years, I've had the great blessing of traveling out to Colorado Springs, where the Air Force Academy is probably about 15 times or so. And the thing I really look forward to when I go out there is seeing the mountains. Colorado Springs is right on the eastern edge of the Rocky Mountains. And from just about wherever you are in that area, you can look to the west and, and see the Rockies looming over what's almost a desert landscape there. In the fall and the winter, there's usually snow on those mountains. And the early morning light makes the mountains turn kind of a, a hue of purple. It's really just beautiful to behold. And the mountain that stands tallest over that area uh, is Pikes Peak. Now, downtown Colorado Springs is already 6,000 feet above sea level. Uh, By comparison, Dansville is officially listed at 705 feet. But the top of Pikes Peak is 14,115 feet above sea level. So the top is more than a mile and a half higher than it is in downtown Colorado Springs. And on those trips out west, I've been able to go up Pikes Peak a few times. We look for things to do. Sometimes in the winter, the road is blocked by snow at above a certain elevation, but on those times that you can get all the way to the top, it's, it's absolutely magnificent. If you drive up, you take a winding road that's almost 20 miles long. First, you pass the, uh, uh, the elevation where the deciduous trees, the The trees with leaves uh, give way to evergreens. Then those evergreens get smaller and then they give way to brush. And eventually you're above the tree line and there's not much more than dirt and rocks. But when you reach the top, it's it's amazing. The air is very thin. If you get out of the car or off the, the train that takes you up there, you might get a little bit dizzy. And you can see practically forever up there. On one trip, the guide Told us that what we were seeing on the horizon to the east was Kansas, and she said it was 200 miles away. What we were seeing on the horizon—that was a great experience. Some might call that a mountaintop experience, but but it's nothing compared to what we're going to see on the mountain this morning. And as you think about it, you might remember that the mountains have had a great and significant role in God's dealings with His people. The, the mountains of Ararat where Noah's Ark rested after the great flood in Genesis 8. Or one of the mountains of Moriah where Abraham was ready to sacrifice Isaac and God provided the ram in the thicket. There's, there's Mount Sinai coming up soon in your study in Exodus 19 and following where God gave the Ten Commandments to Moses. Mount Carmel is where Elijah challenged the false prophets of Baal in the book of Matthew, Jesus gave his Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 through 7, and later in the, in the book in Matthew 24, teaches on the Mount of Olives. David built his city of Jerusalem and Mount Zion, and the heavenly Mount Zion we longingly await for is the Jerusalem above. And even when Jesus was being tempted by Satan, the accuser took the Lord to a very high mountain from which he could see all the kingdoms of the world and of course, the Mount of Calvary. But as significant of all these mountains are, perhaps no mountain is more so than the Mount of Transfiguration. You might even argue that this event is the most significant one in scripture between Jesus's birth and his crucifixion. And our account of this amazing event is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. Uh, They're called Synoptic because they tell much the same account. Uh, From the Greek synoptic, uh, meaning together seen. These show similar accounts, sometimes with some different details. But since we find this in all three Gospels, we can see that it was vitally important to those Gospel writers. And I'm going to add in a couple of details from Mark and Luke this morning, too. And evidently, it was hugely important to Peter. Peter had walked with Christ, he had seen his miracles. He'd even seen and been with a risen Christ. But when it was time for Peter to write the introduction to his second letter, it was this very event that we're talking about this morning that Peter wrote about. In 2 Peter 1:16 through 18, he wrote, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty, For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter, James, and John, together on this mountain, were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For them, this indeed was the ultimate mountaintop experience. So we'll be going uh, into scripture, so you want to keep open uh, Matthew 17. And in fact, we're going to come back a little bit. We'll look at a couple of things in chapter 16, if you want to follow along, just to kind of revisit and set up the backstory. So just before this scene, this, this one that Peter just cited in his epistle, are a couple of up and down moments for Peter. So let's revisit a couple of those. Do you find yourself resonating with Peter's abruptness and clumsiness at times? I do. I I totally do. I couldn't find who said it first, but Peter has been described as the apostle with a foot-shaped mouth because, you know, he was always putting his foot in it. It might have been John MacArthur. I know he's quoted it. But about six days before this event, Peter had been given a revelation from God, and we see this in Matthew 16 starting in verse 13. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon bar for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Peter's indeed blessed because he understands that Jesus is the Messiah, but he still doesn't accept what the scriptures say. And his Lord says about the suffering servant, that the Son of Man must die and be raised. Starting in verse 21 of Matthew 16, but on the things of man. And metaphorically, Peter has gone from the peak of the mountain and tumbled down to the bottom of the hill through his misunderstanding. But now, Peter and James and John are going to get an even more powerful illustration of who Jesus is. Jesus and the disciples have traveled through Galilee for about six days or so, and have arrived at the mountain. And now those three disciples closest to him, closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John, are about to see something utterly amazing. So let's turn to chapter 17 and verse 1. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. Jesus leads the three on this high walk up the mountain, where Jesus has something important to tell them or show them. Luke's account in Luke 9, verse 28, says that they went up the mountain to pray. We don't really have any information about what may have gone on or what may have been discussed on the walk. Peter and James and John must have been curious, and Jesus must have been filled with a great sense of anticipation, knowing what he was about to reveal to them. And in verse 2, it says he was transfigured before them and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. They get to the top and then the most amazing thing happens. Jesus is transfigured before them. Transfigured meaning he's made more beautiful and more glorious before them. Luke and Mark add a little bit of detail to that. Luke says, and as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. And Mark 9, verses 2 and 3, and he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Jesus' face shone like the sun. Have you ever tried to look at the sun? I mean you have an opportunity today, but of course you shouldn't because it's literally blindingly light and bright. And Jesus's clothes became dazzlingly bright, white as light, whiter than anyone could bleach them. Even, even our modern, modern laundry products, right? Probably couldn't, Clorox or OxyClean or whatever. This was just as bright as could be. I imagine it might be like winter Like when we've had a snowfall and the next day the sky is clear and cloudless and blue and bright and the sun at its noontime intensity and the snow, the fresh snow, is so bright and white that you can hardly look at it. They just must have been completely dazzled by it. It certainly did have a lasting effect on Peter. This was light emanating from Jesus' face. This was not like Moses who, when you get to Exodus 34, you'll read he had to put a veil over his face to hide the shining reflection of God's glory until, as 2 Corinthians 3 explains to us, that brightness faded away. And that divine nature of Jesus has been veiled, hidden by human flesh, and now for a brief time the veil has been pulled back and his glory revealed to them. Nothing like this had ever happened, but it should have reminded Peter and James and John of the book of Daniel, and it also should have reminded those gospel readers, those first century Jewish readers who were the earliest audience for this gospel, about Daniel 7 in verse 9. And Daniel writes, as I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, his throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. And John the evangelist would write of his similar vision in Revelation. Revelation 1, verses 12 and following, then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, and on turning I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun shining in full strength. This on the mountain was nothing short of the Son of Man revealing even if just for a short while, his glory. And then when we get to verse 3, Matthew writes, And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with him. Talking with him. Not just visions or ghosts of Moses and Elijah, but those two. Now how do Peter and James and John know who they are? The Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe this suggests that we keep our identity and know one another's identity in glory. And maybe there's some significance that both Moses and Elijah are having a, another amazing event in addition to their previous events on the mountain. And, Moses, and Matthew tells us that Moses and Elijah are talking with Jesus. What are they talking about? Luke's account tells us this, and behold... Two men were walking, or we were talking with him rather, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And that word departure could be translated exodus. Like the exodus from Egypt that Moses led, that prefigures ours, Jesus was to have his own exodus. That through his death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, that he would lead his people to the promised land. At this site, the site of Jesus and Moses and Elijah, Peter is blown away. Peter's amazed and awestruck and, like Peter, tends to be very enthusiastic. And Peter still doesn't quite get it. He's kind of like, hey, let's just hang out here for a while. And Peter said to Jesus from verse 4, Lord, it is good that we are here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Peter says, I'll build some tents and we'll just chill here for a while. But it seems as if Peter still is not grasping what's to come. But it's the next event that shows Peter and James and John and us the real message of this mountaintop experience. In effect, Peter gets his second comeuppance in a week. You know, Jesus had rebuked Peter, telling him, get behind me, Satan. And this time, it's the very presence of God who quiets Peter, who apparently is still yammering on about these tents. He was still speaking, verse 5, when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said... This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. So Peter was still speaking when this bright cloud overshadowed them. There was no doubt who the cloud was. It was the glory of God himself. Like the cloud who led Israel through the desert. Like the cloud who was the presence of God in the tabernacle in the desert and in the wilderness, and in the temple built by Solomon. And booming from that cloud was that voice that said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, the beloved son, the one in whom God is well pleased. Just as at the baptism of Jesus in Matthew 3, when the voice spoke and the spirit of God fell on Jesus like a dove. And it's an echo of many messianic passages in the Hebrew scriptures, places in the, the Old Testament Bible that tell, foretell the coming of Jesus. Like Psalm 2, verse 7, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or in Isaiah 42, 1, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. And it also recalls what Moses told Israel uh, in Deuteronomy. Chapter 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. It is to him you shall listen. Listen to him, or as it says in the King James, hear ye him. And with that cloud overshadowing them and hearing the voice coming from the cloud, Matthew tells us that Peter and James and John fall on their faces and are terrified. Just like Ezekiel was, or Daniel, in the presence of God. Just like John the Evangelist describes in Revelation as John meets the presence of his glorified Savior. But then Jesus, gentle and kind as always, reaches out to comfort them. Verse 7, But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. Everything's okay, he tells them. And they look up and just see Jesus alone, looking as he had with them so many times before. The others, Moses and Elijah, have gone. Jesus, the one they are to listen to, is now there by himself with them. And as it says in verse eight, when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And so as they're heading down the mountain, Jesus tells them to tell nobody about this until after his resurrection. And why the secrecy? Well, as, seen as, as, seen as, as is seen in other parts of Matthew, Jesus cannot allow things to interfere with his mission. We see this in the other gospels too. He must go to Jerusalem, and he must go there to be crucified. Jesus does not need a furor or great crowds getting in his way. But now Peter and James and John are confused. They have seen Elijah right there on the mountain, but they also know Jesus is the Messiah and has already come. So in verse 10, the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? The disciples are remembering the prophet Malachi, right near the end of the Old Testament. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of their fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. And so Jesus explains it all to them and helps them understand what has happened. Jesus answered, and this is verses 11 through 13. He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. But I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to, the, did to him whatever they pleased. So also the Son of Man will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. Now we get it, they say. They now see that all things are in accord with prophecy. And it should be clear to the disciples from this, and it should be clear to us too, that Jesus is indeed God. So, having gone through that, what does this all mean? Well, most importantly, it's yet another example and explanation from Matthew that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament scriptures. That word fulfill is used something like 16 times in Matthew in the sense of bringing to completion or bringing something to its fullest meaning. And that is done in a rich amount of symbolism in what has just happened here on the mountain. First of all, there's meaning in having both Moses and Elijah there. In fact, several reasons. First of all, as I mentioned earlier on, both Moses and Elijah had their own mountaintop experiences with God. Moses at Sinai and Elijah at Mount Carmel. Moses, as lawgiver communicated God's commands and God's desire for the separate and holy conduct of the nation of Israel. And Elijah as prophet spoke God's holy word to Israel. And both that had unique departures from earth. Moses was taken to Mount Nebo, died, and was buried by God while Elijah was caught up into heaven in a whirlwind. But even more important than those similarities and their encounters with God is is this. What is more important is what they symbolically represent here. Let's start with Moses. You've been in a study through the book of Exodus on Sunday mornings all the way up through chapter 15 where they've sung Moses' song of praise and, and worship to the Lord. That's kind of a nice break point right now in your path through the book, as it begins a bit of transition in history. Uh, A transition as things move from Moses leading the people out of Egypt to God speaking his law covenant through Moses as a mediator, and then later to go on to God dwelling with them in the tabernacle. And God has singularly chosen Moses as the one to mediate his words and his will to Israel. I will bring you into the land that I swore to to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses is the one who transmitted the law to Israel, and Moses as the one who is the author of the books of the law, the first five books of the Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. He, in this encounter, represents that part of the Hebrew scriptures known as the Torah or the law. So he serves on the mount not just as an historic figure, but also as a metaphor. And Elijah, as the foremost prophet, represents the prophetic books of the Old Testament. Not only is he a prophet who speaks God's word, and a prophet who foretells God's actions, and a prophet who indicts those who act against God, he's also used as a metaphor here too. And they've also understood that John the Baptist is the Elijah to come. So Moses metaphorically or symbolically represents the law and the law covenant or the Mosaic covenant or the old covenant. And Elijah in the same way represents the prophets of ancient Israel. So together as the law and the prophets, Moses and Elijah represent they, and they embody the Old Testament revelation of God. Now this would have been hugely impactful and significant to the Jewish audience of Matthew's gospel and certainly must have been to Peter and James and John. And Jesus being with them shows Jesus' significance. But even more than that, Jesus' transfiguration and the word from the Father from the cloud makes Jesus preeminent. Remember that Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount, do not think I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises and prophecy of the Old Testament. He's the fulfillment of the law, all of it, the commands, the rituals, the sacrifices, all find their fulfillment and their end, their goal in him. Jesus himself says this to the scribes and the Pharisees in John 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. And Jesus also reminds the two disciples of this on the road to Emmaus. In Luke 24, he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Moses and Elijah, the law and the prophets up there on the mountain, were there to point to Jesus The law and the prophets in the scriptures point to Jesus. Jesus is the final word to us about God. Jesus is the final word. Moses is not, the prophets are not. As John's gospel says, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Jesus is the final word, the prophets are not. Remember, Hebrews begins... Long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So with that, how do we sum this all up? Well, we sum it up with these words spoken from the Father. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. Christians, beloved, brothers and sisters, we're called to have our lives focused on Jesus. We're called to be Christ-centered. We're called to be Christ-focused. We're called to be Christ-like. And Jesus calls us to come to him for that Christ-likeness. Jesus calls, he beckons weary sinners to come to him. Earlier in Matthew, he says, Come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So listen to Jesus. Jesus alone has the words of eternal life. Jesus is God. Jesus is the fulfillment of scripture. Jesus is the final word, the ultimate revelation of God to humanity. So let's close with some some questions to consider. Have you had your mountaintop experience? Have you seen Jesus for who he really is. Do you know, do you, do you really know that he is the way and the truth and the life? Do you know that he bore the weight of sin for the human race so that those who would believe in him would have everlasting life? Having seen him, can you deny that Jesus is the Savior? If you have had your mountaintop experience, if you're a believer in Christ, are you listening to him? Are you listening to Jesus? A word is not going to come to you in a cloud, and you're not going to see Jesus in his glory until you are fully in glory too. But you can hear him in his word, and you can speak to him in prayer. It's by hearing Jesus and speaking to Jesus and knowing Jesus and beholding Jesus that we come to be more like Jesus Jesus, the beloved son of the living God, listen to him.